Hey guys, so we just finished recording a podcast with Cynthia Thurlow. She's a nurse practitioner. She's got over 10 million views on her famous TED talk about intermittent fasting. And now she just wrote a book called Intermittent Fasting Transformation. Yeah, and I love the dialogue that you two get into with the different seasons in, in a woman's life. And really what happens around that 35 to 40 and beyond age. And, uh, and I think it's really important insight for women because I think it's common where we you know, want to present our best self and often we're, we're not expressing the symptoms or the challenges that we're feeling. And so I think you guys do a really good job or in the conversation, it really came out that, you know, it's, it's time to really lean into the experiences that one is feeling and, and uh, not just live with it, not just buy into this idea that it's just because you're getting older. Yeah, so she's teaching on intermittent fasting, and yet there's so many nuances that you'll get to understand as we have this conversation, because it really is about honoring and having reverence for the various stages that we're in, and also understanding that the fact that we need to see these conversations with young people so that they can prevent some of the things that may be showing up after 35, 40, and just also just understanding the body in a different way so that we can bring these daily practices into our life that really are so simple, but yet so profound. Yeah. And on this podcast, there's always a general theme of freedom and releasing sort of the, the old paradigm. And really that's that's the invite with the book, that's the invite with the conversation, is to really step into your freedom and mm -hmm. own that authority over your body and your mind and, and really be able to step into a, a new way of doing life. Yeah, so enjoy, it was a really great conversation. Welcome to the Health Ignited Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Nick and Sonia Jensen. We are partners, parents, business partners, doctors, yoga teachers, and retreat leaders. We promise to bring you real conversations to awaken and ignite your potential to live your best life possible. Join us each week as we dive into topics varying from brain health, biohacking, hormones and longevity, to relationships, parenting, meditation and more. Together, creating community and building stronger foundations for the generations to come. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Health Ignited. Myself, Dr. Sonia, and Dr. Nikram here. Uh, we were just talking about uh, <laughs> nicknames that we have for our husbands. Um, and one of them for me is Hubs, and also our guest that we're going to be talking to today, Cynthia Thurlow. That's what she calls hers. And my other nickname for Nicholas here is Nick Rum. So when <laughs> he was uh, received into the Indian family, we needed to create some yeah. form of identity for him. So that is um, a name that I gave him quite some time ago. Yeah, and I wear it with the bad badge of honor. Yes. I feel way more inclusive with Nick Rum. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, today we have the amazing Cynthia Thurlow here. She's become a good friend, a dear colleague, and has so much to share in the world when it comes to um, intermittent fasting and just health and women's health. And she's written a new book called The Intermittent Fasting Transformation, which every woman is going to need to have. And she is a nurse practitioner, CEO and founder of the Everyday Wellness Project. Her TED Talk has had over 10 million views. That's amazing. Yes. So if you haven't seen it, you got to go check it out. She's an amazing woman. She's a mom of boys, just like me, and is a busy woman, but a woman that makes health priority. And that's really what we want to tap in today is that understanding that we can simplify life so that we can get the benefits for our health and also our relationships. So Cynthia, welcome. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to connect with you both. 
Yeah. Yeah. We both had a pleasure of um, interviewing you first on Women and Wellness for me and then Dr. Dads. And so now we're getting you here on our own uh, podcast, Health Ignited. So it's always exciting to kind of tap into a different piece of the conversation. But today we really want to highlight this amazing book that you've written for, again, like we said, for every woman. And, you know, there was a line that you had in there um, in your introduction about what your physician said to you at some point, you're in your forties now, get used to it. This is your new normal. And so I'd love for you to maybe start with that of like how that felt in your body and in your spirit and what that did for you in wanting to create this trajectory in your life where you started to really tap into this new way of health for yourself and for all the women you work with. Yeah. And I I think the unfortunate thing is I would imagine that is commonly said to a lot of women at this stage of life. And my personality tends to be a little contrary and a little feisty. So when that physician said that to me, it didn't make me upset or sad. It made me mad uh, because I could just imagine this is what countless other women have heard throughout their lifetime. And I, I believe in every factor of my being that the medical system really fails women in middle age that we're very focused on, you know, contraception appropriately. So, um, you know, pregnancy, postpartum period. And then when women are done having families, it's almost as if they're kind of forgotten about. And so this thought process that women at a particular stage of their lives should no longer be concerned about changes in their bodies or should just accept things as they are really runs contrary to kind of my whole methodology. I I think that we're really designed to thrive in middle age and yet uh, everything about our culture suggests otherwise. So when I heard that, I remember being disgusted and then I came home and told my husband and he was kind of like, well, (laughs) well, you know, you are whatever 42, 43, whatever age I was when this was said to me out of utter frustration, because I had said to my husband, you know, I've never, I've never had a weight problem. I've never had trouble sleeping. I've never had energy issues. Now all of a sudden I do. And I don't want this to be what things are like for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And so there has to be answers and there has to be a way back to feeling, you know, vital and vibrant and how I've always felt. I I think that most of us probably don't imagine what our lives are like until we have a health setback or we don't feel good or something changes. And certainly I think it's even more humbling when you're a healthcare professional and that happens to you because no one prepared me. Like I tell people all the time, you know, I trained at a really good research institution and no one prepared me for this time. Not my mom, not my GYN, not my midwife, no one had prepared me. So I kind of feel like I, you know, walked off a cliff and then had to slowly find my way back. And I know this is how a lot of women feel in middle age and beyond for sure. Mm-hmm. So when do you think these conversations need to begin? I mean, before we got on, we were speaking to the fact that this really does need to be a conversation that all women are participating in. So when, when can we start having these conversations with young women? I, you know, I think it needs to be set as an expectation that eventually you're going to go through reverse puberty. Like, just like we set our children up and explain them, you're going to have changes with your bodies, you know, preteen years, teen years, Uh, like letting women know that it is completely normal. Like you have this ramp up of hormones and puberty, and then you have this ramp down period. And, and along with that are going to be changes in your body. Because I think if, if women knew what to expect, 
or at least could notice the subtle changes. Like all of a sudden, maybe their periods start getting heavier or they start struggling more with sleep. They could at least start the conversation, initiate the conversation with their GYN or their midwife or whatever practitioner they see, and at least lean into that conversation, open it up. Because I know for myself that what what I was offered at this stage in my life was uh, synthetic hormones. I was offered, if I didn't want that, I had an IUD option and then it was an ablation and then it was, you know, doing a hysterectomy. And I remember just saying, Hey, time out. None of the above are viable options. Uh, there has to be a better way around this. But, but I think for so many women, they're suffering so much at this stage in their lives. They're willing to do like the most extreme option because they just want to take care, get rid of their uterus and that will take care of their problems. And what I've come mm-hmm. to find in many instances, and I'm sure you both have seen this you know, just doing the ablation or the synthetic hormones or the uter- or removing your uterus doesn't necessarily fix the problem. If you're estrogen dominant, which is what most of us are, uh, at least in the beginning stages of perimenopause, that doesn't fix the problem. That's just addressing one symptom. You know, maybe you've got really heavy periods and that's the impetus. And so I, I think if we're having these conversations, you know, when we're talking about, you know, preteen years, teen years, even young adult years, like having a mom and her daughter having a conversation. My mom was a nurse. My mom never had this conversation, not even my grandmother who was a nurse. So I feel, you know, in many ways, we just don't have enough focus. It's almost like the middle age years are kind of the invisible years. And so women don't feel heard. They feel invisible. That's a word I hear a lot. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I certainly, uh, in in many ways, you know, I, I align with that feeling like you get maligned, like, you know, you're done having kids. It's really not a big deal. Mm -hmm. Who cares if you put on 15 pounds, if your sleep's terrible, here's a bunch of sleep aids. And I would say, okay, well, you know, you're trying to find a solution to a problem, but there has to be more than that. Yeah. I'd love for you to dive in a little bit more of what you're sort of uh, letting the people know about with regards to the symptoms and things, because I think a lot of people do just go, Oh, it's just because I'm getting older. That's why I feel this way. But so much of it is tied to the hormonal system and the changes that are, that are happening. And I, and I, and I don't yet believe maybe, maybe there is a possibility, but I don't know if, if young people, men or women really care enough 10 years in advance. So like, how do we like close the gap and maybe what are some of those early signs and what's some of the stuff that you went through? Because it's, it's very common where we see people who look very healthy, they're lean and they're doing all the right things. Like, you don't have any problems. You don't always like to be me. Right. So what, what, if you could kind of dive into some of those things for people and then how do we close the gap for young people? Yeah. Well, and those are great questions. I think the the most common things that we see beginning stages of like perimenopause is when we get, we have this loss of estrogen, excuse me, loss of progesterone uh, with regards to the ovaries. So our ovaries are as old as we are. We're not like now we're replenishing sperm every three days. Uh, so our eggs are as old as we are. So usually north of 35, we'll start have this loss of progesterone and that could show up with just subtle changes. Maybe your sleep isn't as good. Maybe you have an uptick in anxiety or depression. Maybe your periods start getting a little heavier. Maybe you have breast tenderness, maybe some acne, maybe a little bit of, you know, weight gain around your abdomen, but then it can actually start to get worse. You may have energy issues. You may become anemic. Um, I used to pray that I wouldn't get the first day of my menstrual cycle wouldn't happen when I was rounding in the hospital because it was so heavy uh, that I would jokingly like try to find, you know, the nurse's station, every, you know, department that I went in, in the hospital, like knowing where the safe place was to go if I had a problem. Uh, But obviously that's not any way any woman wants to live. 
So I think that's, that's where it typically starts from, but then it kind of bleeds into maybe you've got a thyroid issue, then you're having developing gut sensitivities. Maybe you uh, find that certain foods no longer agree with you. Uh, you might have some gut imbalances that could show up as a parasitic infection or H. pylori or dysbiosis. You know, you have something called the estrobolome, which is this kind of awkward uh, terminology talking about the role of estrogen and the uh, microbiome of the gut. Um, and then I just really think I lean into the sleep piece because this is really a litmus test. Women will say I wake up every single night between two to 4 a.m., depending on who they are, depending on how well their blood sugar is controlled, they may have hot flashes or vasomotor symptoms. They could also have some sexual side effects. I do see a lot of women are very embarrassed to talk about either, you know, vaginal dryness or lack of lubrication, or they just have no libido whatsoever. And they feel like they're forcing themselves to connect with their partner and they genuinely really want to do that. So I think that's, that's typically the span of what I see, but I also see quite a bit of mood disorders. You know, I mentioned the anxiety and depression can be a huge, uh, huge issue. And then, the, you know, to kind of deal with some of these symptoms, some women really lean into alcohol use. And mm -hmm. the unfortunate thing about alcohol that we don't realize is that it will dysregulate melatonin. So it's going to worsen your sleep. It's going to dysregulate cortisol. It's going to dysregulate blood sugar. You're not going to make good food choices. So you're going to get really high, really poor quality sleep on top of poor quality sleep. And it's going to, you know, create this inflammatory cascade in the body where you're just going to kind of lean more into this blood sugar dysregulation, elevated blood glucose, et cetera. So it really kind of worsens. I always say it's almost like a spinning drain. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And so I find for so many people, um, it's not a sexy topic to talk about lifestyle medicine. Um, we've conditioned our patients. I mean, I certainly, I was part of that, that every symptom has a pill solution and it's a whole lot harder to convince our patients to talk about the sleep and the stress management and nutrition and exercise and meal frequency and food choices than it is to say, I'm just going to write you a prescription that's going to help with your bleeding. And maybe, you know, maybe your periods won't be as heavy and, you know, we'll, we'll deal with some other things around the way to deal with sleep as one example. And I agree with you, Nick, that, you know, it's, it's probably not what a 30 year old wants to be talking about or 25 year old. Certainly I have teenagers and I can tell you, they don't want to talk about what's coming in 10 years, but at least when you're having an annual examination with your, whoever you do your annual exam with your MD, your ND, your nurse practitioner, et cetera, saying like, Hey, I just want to give you a heads up. You're kind of heading into those years where you may start noticing some signs and symptoms because it provides some degree of reassurance. I know for myself, even with my close girlfriends who I've been friends with my entire life, none of us were talking about these things. Mm -hmm. And it was almost like there was a, a degree of shame that really, it was like a blanket of shame. We were all embarrassed to have these symptoms. Um, you know, we're a, a culture that is largely very ageist. And so, you know, age is not a good thing. Women want to look as young as possible. Um, you know, the filter culture where no one actually knows what everyone looks like because we put filters on for everything. And so I think in many levels, there's, there's this kind of constant battle of trying to accept where you are in time and space and then trying to make peace with yourself because we're human, right? I think each one of us are human and there's nothing more frustrating when you feel like you're doing all the right things and things are not falling into place with, with your health or with the amount of energy you have or your stamina or exercise. And, and the one thing that I have consistently seen is that when women get stuck in the stage, they lean into what has worked for them when they were younger, you know, exercise harder, 
restrict more food, who cares about sleep. Um, I can put my, my personal life on the back burner. I'm going to, you know, put the pedal to the metal with work and work harder. Uh, I, I find those things maybe in your twenties and thirties, your body can kind of adapt, but not in middle age. It's like a totally different game. And, and it's one of those things, like if someone had told me 20 years ago, what things would be like now, I'm not sure that I would have not listened to it, but I didn't really have an appreciation. I think there are certainly people that struggle throughout their lifetime with health issues. And my heart really goes out to them because I, I think that they're probably better prepared for the changes that occur versus the people who've just kind of effortlessly floated through life, not really thinking about how all these factors work together. And, and the thing that makes me laugh the most is when I think about sleep um, now, it's it's like 15 things that have to all fit together to make sure my sleep is cohesive versus I used to just hit my head on the pillow and I would just be asleep effortlessly and woke up when my alarm went off. And now it's so many different pieces that have to fall into place to make sure my sleep is really a priority and super high quality. And that alone for a lot of people, it just requires a lot. It requires some effort. And so that can be super unsexy. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things you said in there that we can unpack. And I think the theme that I kind of captured from what you just said is just really being able to one, listen to mm -hmm. the body when we're in those early stages. Cause like you said, we can kind of just navigate life and kind of keep going through life and not knowing until something bigger happens. And that usually happens after we turn 40 and we're just more aware because now the noise of our outside world has also quieted out a little bit. Like the kids are a little bit older. We might be a bit more established in our career. And all of a sudden there's just space to kind of hear the body. Whereas before there was overwhelm and there was so much that we were doing that it, it wasn't a priority because it didn't have to be. And that's what I love about your approach with the intermittent fasting too in the book. Like it just simplifies things to create that freedom that you speak about in the book to that freedom to live life the way you want to, because now there's this thing that you don't have to worry about anymore. So maybe talking about how women can do that, especially starting at a young age so that they can prevent these challenges that will show up as we age. And before we move on to that too, just that other piece of aging that you brought up, I think is so important to just plant those seeds when we're young and really reframing that aging is actually freedom. Mm -hmm. It's freedom from all the youthful things that, you know, constrain us from living our truest self, but really there's so much freedom that we can awaken to. But if the body isn't feeling good, if we're feeling unhealthy, if we're feeling sluggish, our libido's low, all those things aren't working well, we can't really see that clearly. So just going back to that first question, like how can women simplify their life through intermittent fasting so that they can have more space to look at their life in a different way? Yeah. And I love that reframe. I think, you know, for many of us, we're really disconnected from our bodies. We numb ourselves, whether it's with electronics or drinking or food or et cetera. And so I really look at fasting as freedom. It's really keeping yourself aligned with how you feel, you know, do you wake up in the morning? Are you starving? Or do you wake up in the morning and you have a lot of energy and you have a cup of green tea or a cup of coffee, depending on what your preference is, or a glass of water and you get your day started without having to worry about making another meal. Maybe you're feeding your children. Maybe you're, you know, helping your significant other or another loved one uh, kind of get up and get moving. But to me to have one less meal to have to worry about either preparing for myself or eating and then really leaning into how, um, how much mental clarity you have, 
you know, for those that are new to fasting, they may not start off that way. They may really be struggling. I always say, if you are eating the standard American diet and you're very physically sedentary, and for a lot of people, that's where they start from. And there's absolutely no judgment. I think, uh, in fact, I applaud people who have to go through more, uh, you know, kind of more obstacles to, to get to being more metabolically flexible. Uh, but when people get to the point where they have lowered insulin levels and their body's able to utilize um, stored fats as a fuel source, and they get this wonderful brain clarity, and they go on to have a reduction in inflammation because they aren't eating uh, as frequently, their blood sugar is better stable. You know, one of the things that I love, we have a an ongoing, you know, yearly group uh, called IF45. And what's interesting to me is almost instantly within the first two to three weeks, I'll have women saying things like, Oh my gosh, I didn't realize like the achiness I had in my joints wasn't really, was really more a manifestation of my meal frequency or the fact that my blood sugar was up. Um, and then people are able to kind of trend their blood sugar. They're able to get better sleep. Um, they feel like they are just better balanced. Maybe their hot flashes go away. I have one woman right now that that's all she talks about is she's like, I didn't realize my hot flashes were a direct reflection of eating so frequently. And so it really starts off simple that, you know, you lean into the fact that all of a sudden you're able to discern between emotional hunger for many people versus true physical hunger, that acknowledgement that your stomach growling doesn't necessarily mean that you're hungry. It could be that you're dehydrated and how many of us walk around chronically dehydrated. Um, and so just that growing awareness, I, I find that it's so incredibly empowering. And this is beyond the initial attraction for many people coming to intermittent fasting is that they want to change body composition. They want to lose weight. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, you know, what's really amazing is I had no idea that I would be so clear. I could get through the first three hours of my workday on a cup of green tea or just some water with electrolytes. And then all of a sudden when lunchtime comes around, I'm like really genuinely hungry and ready to accept this food or I found out I could, you know, run a couple miles and do that fasted or go to the gym. And so I, I see it being really empowering. And, and for many people, they just realize I don't really need to have three meals a day and snacks. I can have two like really good quality meals and I savor them and I enjoy them and I'm not in a rush. And for so many of us, we are constantly over harried, over stressed. And so having the opportunity to kind of be in this more parasympathetic, relaxed, state where we actually can digest our food, detoxify, um, and just have some digestive rest, I think is really a beautiful thing. And that's, it's interesting how like over time, as I've been practicing intermittent fasting, I see it from different angles. And I love seeing that in, you know, clients and patients I work with when they're able to have those aha moments of like, wow, I didn't realize this was one of the benefits. I was so focused on my pant size or the, the scale or, you know, what my weight needed to be. And instead they have far more substantial, um, you know, uh, clarity about things that they didn't even realize were of greater importance to them. I love how you frame that because <clears throat> I think for a lot of people, vanity drives behavior, right? And so it's a way to, to get people excited about it is because, you know, you're going to physically transform your body. And then <laughs> all these little bonuses that actually are very weighing emotionally, you know, it may be even more so than, than body image or maybe on par with that takes up a ton of space and just nutrition. And, you know, so, the, you know, when you speak about freedom, it's, it's very like, it's, it's intricate and all these little, you know, multifaceted details. I, I, was, I also thought it was something interesting you shared earlier, just with regards to shame. You know, so many of us want to 
obviously show up as our best self. We want, we want everyone else to see us that way too. So we, we have a lot of shame around where we're not showing up that way or where we're feeling inconsistent with how we want to feel. So I'd love for you to help, uh, help women maybe just, okay, let's just talk about this. Let's, let's sort of declutter the, the, the stress around it. And just, this is just a reality. And so we can actually do something about it too. It doesn't have to be a life sentence. So how do you, how do you help women sort of open up to like, Let's just be honest about it. This is what's going on. Yeah. And I think it's, it's important for us to have these discussions. I mean, I've been very open that I had a big birthday last August. I'm not the least bit ashamed to say I'm 50. Um, I, I think people are surprised because people have this assumption of what that age looks like. Yeah. And so I, I think it's just important for those of us that have you know hit milestones to talk about it, to not feel ashamed or uncomfortable or feel like you're being judged because we set our own expectations. We set our own kind of perspectives on how we want to view healthy aging. My husband's very physically active. So am I, Um, we have a very active family, but I think for so many women, they, they've been conditioned. And I certainly had a mom that uh, would tell me every year her, she was turning 30 again. And that was this ongoing joke. And my mom still holds on to that, even though she's now in her seventies. And so I, I think some of it is, um, generational. I think that it was, it made women very uncomfortable to talk about their age. My mother used to always say, you know, don't ever ask a woman her age. And now I kind of feel like, why should there be any discomfort in talking about our age? If anything, I feel like my forties and now this is my first year into my fifties is a time when women are much more self-assured. They are much more comfortable. They feel less, uh, less apt to feel judged. They're more comfortable in their skin. They don't feel like they have to be as much of a people pleaser. And so when I think about that shame piece, I think the more we talk about the changes that are going on with our bodies, the more we lean into those uncomfortable conversations, the more we uh, talk about the things that kind of make us cringe. Like I, I was being interviewed for a podcast earlier today, and I was saying uh, probably the most uncomfortable thing I've done in the last few years was uh, when I, my first TED talk was about perimenopause. And I was so uncomfortable as a healthcare provider. Does that even sound right? so uncomfortable talking about how I navigated middle age and it made me laugh like retrospectively. I'm like, who cares? I mean, like, why was I so caught up on a number and a, and a stage of life? And now there's so much freedom. And, and I think the more that we destigmatize um, aging, the more we talk about the weird things that happen with our bodies, some of which are good, some of which, you know, there are some things that are starting to head North. It's not ideal, you know, but there, there's all sorts of ways around it. You know, maybe I don't wear as short of a skirt. Maybe I wear a skirt to my knee. I'm totally okay with that. Um, that isn't a big deal, but maybe for someone else it might be problematic. But I think the more we talk about and normalize the things that are going on and we do it in a way that, you know, we're not making fun of ourselves, but we're just being factual and you can't compare yourself to anyone. Like, you know, pa- Paulina Poroskova, who was this supermodel from like the 1990s, who's absolutely beautiful gets uh, a a lot of support on Instagram as an example, because she hasn't done anything surgically to herself, but she's still absolutely beautiful. And she talks about just the pressure and the comments that people make like, Oh, you need Botox. Oh, you need this. Oh, you need that. And now she keeps saying like, I want to be a, uh, an example for women of what a, a 50 plus year old woman looks like. And I don't judge anyone who decides to do Botox or surgery or anything else, but this is how I'm going to navigate middle age. And I feel the same way that each one of us has to decide what makes sense, what resonates, that there should be no judgment. There are um, a couple uh, people on Instagram who like to point out 
who's doing what, you know, you're using a filter, this person's not, why are you doing this? And I, I affectionately refer to these people as the harpies. And so I just tune them out because energetically, I'm just not um, aligned with that. And I just think there are too many other people that I want to impact positively to get, you know, kind of drawn down in that. And I think it's important for women to know it's okay to say no, it's okay to have boundaries and it's okay to unfollow, unlike, uh, not associate with, with people or institutions or accounts that don't resonate with your own. I think that's been a really powerful realization for myself over the past probably a few years. Um, and I do it regularly. Like I do a social media audit and I kind of go through the, who am I following? And if I don't like their content, why am I following them? I'm not doing it for any reason beyond um, just genuinely wanting to support other human beings. But if they're negative or they don't present a good ideal role model for myself or other women at this stage, then I, I will unfollow them in a heartbeat. I love that. Yeah. I want to say, I know you've got to say, but I think there's something really important that, that you're educating people on and women and men too, because I'm sure men are going to be tuning into this and saying, I want my wife to, to, to jump in. And, and one of those things is like, there's such a power and authority of really owning your body because when, when you hear you speak, when I hear Sonia speak, when I hear women articulate this phenomenon, there's this real emergence of mind and body coming together. And it's really beautiful to hear because it's full on acceptance and it's acceptance of your authority. And this is about like feminist movement or anything. It's really just empowering that female energy that, that you come with. And I love like this stage in a woman's life because there's so much of this authority of owning your body and owning your mind and speaking freely about it. It's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a lot of unraveling of the cultural conditioning, right. And that um, cultural norm of what aging looks like of what, how we're supposed to be behave, what we're supposed to say, all the shoulds and the coulds. And really I, when I turned 40, I was like, yes, I'm in my FU forties. Finally, <laughs> you know, I couldn't wait to get into this mm -hmm. decade. And it just, um, it really does give you so much opportunity to understand yourself more, to understand um, what you want from life and to, yeah, no problem. And, you know, I think it's so important to have these conversations like openly. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I love it. It's just, it's just fun being a, <clears throat> a man in observance of, uh, of women taking their power back and really owning it. So I love mm -hmm. it. Yeah. yeah. Go yeah. ahead. Sorry. I know you got So I would love um, when it comes to children, right? So yes, this is a book for women. And I think, um, and even this conversation, men and women, like you were saying, are going to really receive what they need from it. And as women being the ones that are, you know, making often the decisions of like what the family is going to be eating, and they're kind of like the center of um, that family unit and even their communities. And when it comes to children, really starting to teach them this relationship with food and this um, relationship that maybe they're getting different signals from the environment too. Cause I know in your book, you have the, the bad dogmas that you speak about. So if you want to speak to them a little bit about some of the misconceptions we have around food, and you kind of spoke to one a little bit about breakfast, you know, we are taught that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And I have to say with my Indian background, um, if I don't see my child eating, I do have a mini like, 
palpitation, <laughs> right? Even though I know, I know all this. And yet that cultural conditioning comes in of like, oh no, he's not eating right now. What can I do to put in front of him to help him eat some more? Because that makes me feel like I'm doing my job well, instead of really listening to his cues. So how can we help women navigate this in their families? I think it's a great question. I have two teenage boys who are very athletic. And so my football playing, lacrosse playing 16 year old really needs to eat breakfast. Like he, his stomach is really growling when he gets up. I mean, he eats super, he eats two dinners. I mean, the kid eats really healthy. (laughs) Um, And then my 14 year old, he swims competitively like five, six days a week. And so he gets home at nine o'clock at night from swimming and has a second dinner And when he gets up in the morning, he is not hungry. And I've kind of gotten to the point where he and I have agreed to disagree about the fact that I was like, take something with you. And he's like, but I'm not hungry at seven o'clock in the morning when I get on the school bus. And so on the weekends, he will oftentimes not eat till 10 or 11 a.m. But he will in his feeding window, he will get in an enormous amount of food. And so the concept of breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I think it's highly bio-individual. Obviously, I'm not suggesting that children practice intermittent fasting. And that's not really what my son does, but I do think it's important to uh, help them understand what their body, what bodily cues their body is trying to identify for them in terms of like, what is hunger? What is a craving? What is nourishing food? What is not? And so, you know, in our house for full disclosure, I actually just did a Costco video, uh, because I, I'm like, I'm a realist. I've got teenagers. Of course, you know, there are going to be some processed foods in our house. We just try to make the best choices with what is available. And there are certain ingredients that are kind of a no brainer, but I think for them, you know, practicing intermittent fasting around them, they really do understand like mom gets in two big meals a day. She doesn't eat breakfast. Um, you know, when we travel, I may change that up. When we were in Costa Rica during Christmas, I had breakfast every most days because we had very, very active days. And oftentimes we weren't home until the afternoon. Um, and so I, I think it's just important for us to be having ongoing conversations. Like if you're not hungry, you don't have to eat. And I'm a huge believer in that, that, you know, I was raised with an Italian mom and you better believe that we were required to have our glass of milk and our protein and our vegetables. And we had to eat everything or we couldn't leave the table. I'm not of that belief system. I always say to my kids, like, if you're done and you're full, that's fine, but don't come back an hour later and want something else. Mm -hmm. So I think really allowing our kids to understand like what is true intrinsic hunger. And and my boys are old enough and mature enough to understand that. And then also honoring their bodies. Like I can tell you that my kids, most 90% of what we eat, we make at home. So when we go out to meals, sometimes I'll let them get things I wouldn't normally let them get. And my older son always gets an upset stomach. And so I said, just reinforces good habits. My younger son will get the same thing. I'll come home and say, you know, that tasted really good at the time, but now I feel awful. And I'm like, okay, well, this is a valuable learning experience. It happens to adults too. And it really just depends on like, how much is it worth it? Like, if you're not going to feel good after eating something, whereas I just kind of go, it's not worth it for me to feel that way. So I won't eat X. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're still kind of learning as they go along, but I think it's important to set a good example and you know, I really practice what I preach. You know, we try to bring, you know, super healthy foods in the house. We're very animal based, uh, animal meat based focused, um, a lot of vegetables, but my kids eat far more carbohydrates than I do. And I'm in a different life stage. It's completely appropriate. And that's, that's one thing that I, I think for a lot of people, they get very triggered, um, when you start talking about nutrition. And so I just try to always provide some basis for why my kids might eat a little differently than I do. Like I may sit down with a steak and have broccoli 
they may have the steak, the broccoli and a baked potato. And my husband may too. And that's totally okay. You know, women, we don't have as much flexibility with carbohydrates as we get older. And that is completely okay. I think everyone just needs to know that. So my kids definitely eat pretty healthy. One eats more healthy than the other. Um, and that's a whole separate conversation, but I think role modeling behavior is certainly important for them. And, and I think that they're at a position that, you know, they, if they were asked to, they could make a healthy meal on their own. I think cooking skills are really important for children. I always say to my kids, my job as your parent is to make sure that um, I raise an independent adult. I mean, that's as hard as it is to process that they'll be going off to college in a couple of years. I want them to feel empowered when they go off to college, that they're not stuck mm-hmm. with like crappy dorm food that they, if they need to, they can actually cook a nutritious meal. Yeah. I love that. And it's, it's similar to how we're trying to raise our children too. And we have the same thing going. One definitely <clears throat> eats a little bit healthier and is able to listen to his body in a different way. Whereas the other one um, is always hungry and mm-hmm. even when he's not. So just really helping <laughs> him understand what true hunger is and what a craving is and just like being able to discern that. And, you know, they are starting to learn. I mean, they're seven and 10, so they're Mm -hmm. still, they're still getting it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting too, because so much of our cultural situation, like school, leaving the house at seven in the morning, you got to eat before you go. It's like partly like we live in a society where it's our, our, our meals are being dictated to us Mm -hmm. as a, as a result of the schedule. Yeah. which is like not at all listening to your body. And so to the point of, you know, your, your younger son, he's just learning to listen. And what a beautiful message for everybody, because yeah. we often are on the seafood diet clock. It's uh, you see food, so you eat it, or you realize it's that time of day. You're looking at your watch and recognizing what well, I should, I should eat. Yeah. And that's such a disconnect between what we actually need and and uh, and listening to the body. So mm-hmm. that's super important for sure. Yeah. You mentioned um, your group, your IF45, and the book is based on um, this method that you've created. So I'd love for you to kind of dissect that method for our listeners too, so they understand what that actually involves. And because really like the book is so well laid out and it's like simplification, is that a word? And um, just being able to really understand why everyone should intermittent fast and the science behind it and just like step to step, like so easily can be incorporated to anyone's life. So I'd love for you to just kind of unravel that for us. a little Yeah. Bit. It, and just if I could add yeah. a, something on there, like simple yet so detailed, yes. it's like, if you had to go anywhere to learn, where do, where do I start? Yeah. <clears throat> it's all there. Like mm-hmm. it really gives you everything you need to know. I love all like even the inputs of supplementation mm-hmm. <clears throat> where you can add things in. It's super, super helpful. So, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think the really cool thing is that IF45 has been several years in the making. Obviously, after that second TED Talk went viral, uh, we were scrambling. My team and I were scrambling because people were coming to us like, oh, you're the expert. You should be able to you know, create a program. And so we scrambled. And what ended up happening was a lot of trial and error. What works? What doesn't work? How much support does people, do people need? What's a minimum amount of time? What's a maximum amount of time? And so the 45 days, you spent a whole week kind of in an induction phase where you're kind of cleaning up your pantry and getting to a point where, as I always say, I want people eating lower carb and it doesn't mean ketogenic. It doesn't mean, you know, technically low carb under 50 grams of carbs a day. But if if the average American, as an example, consumes 200 to 300 grams of carbs a day, we're eating too much. I mean, that's average. So encouraging people to kind of, you know, stock your, your refrigerator and your pantry with healthy options 
And then we kind of start on this path. And I always say that everyone's coming at it from a different angle. There are some people who are going from eating a standard American diet and being a couch potato to fasting and and perhaps going from six o'clock at night to 6am the next day is a huge stretch. They, they, the average American right now eats anywhere from six to 10 times a day. And that's probably fairly conservative. That was based on a, a study by Sachin Panda. And I remind people that that's, you know, the three meals a day, the mini meals, you know, the snacks, that's the, you know, sugary beverages that people are consuming throughout the day. And so going from a, a mindset and a methodology where you're eating every two to every one to two hours for that matter, um, you're kind of setting yourself up for this degree of hormonal dysregulation that's sending, it's not sending the proper cues to your brain, to your stomach. Um, you know, your sleep is disrupted, your blood sugar is a disaster. So some people are starting off with digestive rest, which is I, what I affectionately call, you know, 12 hours of not eating. And it could be as simple as you eat dinner at six and you don't eat again until six, you know, 6am the next day, or maybe 7am and you're having black coffee, bitter teas and water. And, you know, the ideal, the idea is to get to a point where you're fasting for 16 hours, um, you know, without, without restrictions. What I find really interesting is that there's a lot that goes into that journey. There's a lot of mindset work. There's a lot of, you know, resting. There's a lot of fueling your body properly. You know, most, if you look at my plate, uh, my plate is really focused on heart healthy grains, you know, air quotes. And so I think it's really important for people to understand the need for eating nutrient dense food. Most of us are not. And so, you know, if it's a piece of steak, a piece of fish, a piece of chicken, some eggs, you're really going to focus on protein. And I think this is critically important for women, largely because after the age of 40, we, there, well, it happens to men too. There's a process called sarcopenia. It's not a question of if, but when we will lose muscle mass. And the only way to help stabilize slash reverse this is you have to eat enough high quality protein and you have to lift heavy things and you need high quality sleep. I would say that's those three things. So really encouraging women to lean into the port, into the protein, which helps the satiety cues, um, and there's specific hormones that are, that are regulated with that, you know, having some healthy fats, but not going overboard. This is something I see a lot of women doing is it's very easy to overeat cheese. It's very easy to overeat nuts, although they are delicious. Um, and then, you know, making sure that you have a good amount of non-starchy vegetables. So you're getting in some fiber that helps with feeling full as well. And then really timing your carbohydrates. You know, we talk about carb cycling, this is a strategy I myself in, in enjoy. And I find for a lot of women that if they carb cycle, meaning they have days of lower carb and then days of higher carb, they're less likely to binge. They're less likely to feel like they are being deprived. And I always have this kind of standard mantra that if you can't moderate, you eliminate. So if there's something that's like your crack, you know, for me, I don't eat, I don't even keep things like cookies or cake or things like that in the house, because even if it's made with gluten-free flour, I seem to be, it's like my kryptonite. So I don't keep those things in my like house. Yeah. yeah, it's like chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, however, I do enjoy dark chocolate, but I, but I, I can moderate that. So I would say if you can't moderate, you eliminate. Um, if you can moderate, great. But I think it's really important to just even understand the basics, like getting high quality sleep, doing the stress management piece, really making sure women have all of the foundational approaches that will help them be successful. And then we weave in some fun challenges if people are ready for them and challenges that are safe, things that aren't going to feel terribly overwhelming. And it's done in a way that I want everyone, all women to feel inspired and empowered and not to feel like, oh, it's just another intermittent fasting book. Cause I, I don't know of any intermittent fasting books that are written for women by a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really important that it honors our own physiology. And, and I think the things that make us different are beautiful. 
you know, whether you're still cycling, still getting your menstrual cycle, your perimenopausal or menopausal, we do have to fast differently. And so I honor each one of those kind of life stages in a way that helps people understand like, this is what's happening to your body. And this is why a lean 25 year old who's still at her peak fertility years cannot fast like a menopausal woman. Um, and a perimenopausal woman, you're in your own private Idaho. It is totally <laughs> different, but it's not in a bad way. And I think it's that reframing. Like I constantly try to reframe, like, yes, there are things about, you know, the aging process that may not be what you want them to be. However, let's reframe it. Like not everyone has the opportunity or the ability to be able to be a strong 45 year old or 50 year old or 35 year old. So like coming from a place of gratitude always um, allows us to really kind of like lean into saying, okay, well, I didn't get a great night's sleep, but today's going to be a great day because so actually like practicing gratitude, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer as I know you both are that, you know, the mindset work is really the work. Um, if you can wrap your head around those lifestyle changes and, you know, be in a good headspace that will allow you to be so much more successful than if you're, as I call it, the Eeyore, um, as much as I love Eeyore, because Eeyore is cute, but, you know, the, the doom and gloom, like we have to kind of keep reframing. We all have those days. We're all human, but that isn't the baseline that we want to cover. And we're not modeling good behavior for our kids if we, if we remain in that kind of Eeyore space. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, all that's so important. And just really the honoring that you're speaking to of the seasons that we're in in our life. And also during the month when it comes to menstruating cycle, um, menstruating women, um, I think all of that is so well um, written in your book so that women can really sink their teeth into this fact that we are always evolving and changing and what worked before doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work now. And that perception of who we are is going to influence that relationship with food and really unraveling that relationship with food is also going to create just healing on so many different levels, especially when it comes to that hormonal piece that you're speaking to. So, so grateful that you wrote this book because it's so needed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's so many women that are struggling even with fasting because they don't know that a lot of the studies that were done were done on men. And, you know, even studies that were supposed to be for women, like for menopause, there were no women in the actual study. So when women start to really understand that, they know they need a book like this to help them reframe what health is supposed to look like. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, I think one of my greatest disappointments is that there's so much fear mongering that goes on. I get DMS. I'm sure you both do as well. Like women who just are genuinely afraid that doing fasting or practicing fasting is going to hurt them. um, That women can't fast. Um, There are a lot of, you know, professionals out there that say things like that. And I think it really does us a disservice. If you really think about statistically how metabolically unhealthy most Westernized countries are, we're really doing ourselves a disservice because if you look at the research uh, that have been done on women, and I'm talking about women with diabetes, polycystic ovarian syndrome, infertility, we know that eating less often can be hugely impactful, uh, especially for anyone that has any insulin resistance, we're told they're insulin resistant. It's almost doing them a disservice to suggest that eating more frequently and eating heart healthy grains and, you know, not abiding by a low carbohydrate diet is somehow going to hurt them. So I, I think on every, every level that even if someone were to fast two days a week, there are so many health benefits that this is, we wouldn't be here as a species if women could not uh, go through periods of, you know, I hate to use the word famine. I'm not trying to oversimplify things, but if there weren't periods where there was food scarcity 
And then there were periods of, of, of bounty. And so it's this balance in our bodies that is so, so critically important. And, and the irony is my kids who, you know, have heard me talk about fasting for years now, you know, they'll talk to their friends about it. And, you know, there's this common misconception. I'm sure that you hear, hear it both. People are like, well, it's just starvation. And I'm like, no, no, starvation's, starvation is, is a decision not to eat at all. Like that is not what we're doing. We are timing our eating and our fasting and we're doing it in a way that honors our unique physiology and who we are as individuals. And that's the beauty of fasting is that it's flexible. It can change day to day, week to week, depending on where your cycle is um, and life stage that you're at. Mm-hmm. That's so great. I mean, that's kind of what I was wanting to ask you just before we close out was, you know, a lot of women and men maybe struggle with um, emotional eating and food addiction. And sometimes when you hear the word starvation, fasting, it's like, well, I already have a, a food problem. Is this just going to make things worse for me? I don't want to just move to the other end of the spectrum or maybe history of bulimia or anorexia. So how do you, how do you handle those questions? Because I'm sure that you get them very often. Yeah. I mean, I think if someone has an existing history of disordered relationship with food, whether it's bulimia, anorexia, or binge eating, have I met women that have been successful with intermittent fasting? Yes. Are they, are they the rarity? Yes. Do I think women can do it and still have that as a past medical history? Yes. But they need to work concurrently with an eating disorder specialist to make sure they're getting the support they need. That's first and foremost. Um, I get a lot of questions about intuitive eating. So people that have proper hormonal balance and are metabolically flexible can intuitively eat. If you are um, 50 pounds overweight, you're insulin resistant, you're leptin resistant, et cetera, you cannot intuitively eat because the hormonal regulation in your body is not balanced properly. So when you get back into metabolic flexibility, when your body can flux between using fats or um, sugar for, uh, for fuel, then you can intuitively, then you can listen to your body. Then it, then your body is actually going to be whispering to you saying, yes, now I'm hungry. No, now I'm not. I think that's a beautiful thing that when people get, again, we go back to the balance piece, um, as people's bodies get better balanced, they can intuitively eat, but intuitive eating, when people talk about that and they say that everyone should be doing that, I think it really does people a disservice. It's really more, if you're metabolically flexible, you can intuitively eat. And until you're metabolically flexible, you cannot intuitively eat. Um, I think it almost does people a disservice, but I do, I do think in unique circumstances, people with a disordered relationship with food, provided they're getting the support they need, they can fast, but you have to be careful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love how you yeah. said that. Uh, I mean, when our brain's inflamed as a result of you know, weight loss, uh, insulin resistance to toxicity, to chronic stress, we're not going to make good decisions. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> trying to filter down to that intuitive eating, it's not going to be reality. And it's not judgment. It's just the reality of chronic inflammation and, and the body not being able to communicate effectively. So mm-hmm. it's beautiful. Yeah. So the last question that we like to ask our guests is, um, you know, you've done so much work in the world already. And if you knew that tomorrow, and, and this might get really personal for you, because I know you've had these experiences, but if tomorrow was it, was the last day here on earth, what is the message or imprint that you want to leave on the world today? Oh. Wow. Um, I just want women to embrace aging. And I I want women to not fear chronologic age and biologic age. And I want them to feel empowered. And I would hope that, you know, my, you know, kind of message and methodology has allowed women to feel educated and inspired. I mean, that, that to me is, you know, the, the impact that I hope to leave in this world. 
um, just on a professional level that would, you know, I could definitely feel at peace um, knowing that for sure. Uh, the, the irony is when I left clinical medicine now, six years ago, be six years on April 1st, it was one of the hardest decisions I ever made. And my husband thought I was a little crazy. Now he doesn't. But I do, I do say to people that making a larger impact in the world and serving others is really my life's work. And so I, I think that would dovetail into what I had just answered that um, just inspiring women to live their best lives and not to be fearful about aging. I know a lot of people say that and they don't mean it, mm-hmm. but I mean it because we spend 40% of our lifetime in menopause. And so it's important for women to not feel disempowered. I don't even know if that's a word. I don't want them to feel unempowered. I don't want them to feel like they're silenced or that they're insignificant. In a lot of other cultures, um, middle-aged and older men and women are revered and respected. And it's really just a, a byproduct of maybe here in the United States. I can't speak to every country, but I do feel like in a lot of ways, um, our elders are not held in the same level of esteem. And I think that's really unfortunate because there's so much to learn. Like I look to my older family members and friends and, you know, see them as incredible resources and, you know, so much at peace, you know, they're not worried about all the bright, shiny objects. They're just focused on, you know, remaining aligned to what's important to them and their purpose. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Just one thing, like when you, when you said 40%, it's, it just hits home. You know, I, I'd never like, obviously it's just math, but it's, it's really powerful to hear that mm-hmm. because you, you think that, Oh, life is kind of over at menopause or whatever. Or I don't think that, of course, uh, I'm not a woman, so I can't think that way, <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting you put that number to it because there's so much, you know, there and available. And, you know, we kind of mentioned that the authority and really this merging of mind and body and, and stepping into your power. Um, it's really, it's, it's like reclaiming that ability to do it. So that's mm-hmm. beautiful. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah, no, it's a statistic that I think people need to hear because it keeps things very clear. It's like, listen, this isn't just 10% of your life. It's 40%. It's almost half your life. Um, yeah. I don't know about you all, but I, you know, want to remain happy, healthy, uh, and able to contribute throughout my lifetime. I don't want to like fall off a cliff at <laughs> a certain age. And then I look back and go, okay, well, it's all over now. I don't yeah. want to go that way. Yeah. So there it is. We need to change that messaging of over the hill and all the various things that come with these milestones that we hit. It really is about graceful aging and being able to, like you said, reclaim that power that's, or, or ignite the power that's already there. That's just been lost a little. So thank you, Cynthia. Thank you. you. And where can everybody get your book and where can they find you and the work that you do? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, www.cynthiatherlow.com. Um, you can click on the links for the pre-sale for the book, but it's available on Target, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore. Um, there are pre-sale bonuses that are only available until publication date, and they are great ones. I always say that um, I, I certainly over the years, as I'm sure you both have, have bought books and you get these pre-sale bonuses and you kind of go, well, I didn't really need that. You try to make these. These are things that will take your intermittent fasting um, uh, strategies up a notch. They're really designed to be super valuable and helpful. Um, you can find me on Instagram. I'm snarky on Twitter before warned. Uh, I'm also, <laughs> I also um, have a podcast called Everyday Wellness where I've had the beautiful benefit of having uh, Dr. Sonia on recently. We'll have to have Dr. Nick on in the future. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of everywhere, but all, all in good. It's all about empowerment and feeling good about yourself and helping give you good information so you can 
you know, live your best life. That's yeah, awesome. Thank you. Well, you shine so bright. So no. thank you for shining on our podcast as well. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Health Ignited podcast. Be sure to download, subscribe, and share as we build this conscious community together. You can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and our website, drsjensen.com. Please note all information on this podcast is not and should not be taken as medical advice. Please see a healthcare professional to receive the care needed. Thank you for sharing this time with us, igniting your health freedom. And welcome to the tribe.